Today's scripture reading for today's sermon comes from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. New Hope, that's the word of God for you today. Hi, New Hope. Happy Easter to all of you. This is an Easter Sunday unlike any other for us, isn't it? We're all confined to our own homes. If you've left your home today, you've probably done it really cautiously. You've taken every precaution to avoid exposing yourself to this virus. Maybe you left your home fearfully, even. All this reminds us that uh, this world is broken, doesn't it? Uh, even as you awoke this morning, I, I wonder if you thought, this, this isn't what Easter is supposed to be like. Perhaps this, it's on an Easter Sunday like this that we have an opportunity to get a deeper sense of what the resurrection means for us, for this world. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth was executed by crucifixion in Palestine. And the only reason that you or I know anything about that or anything about him is that in less than 48 hours after his burial, his tomb was found empty. And hundreds of people reported seeing him, not, not as a ghost or some kind of specter, they, they saw a man, flesh, Bones. He appeared to groups of people at a time. He was touched. He was questioned by them. He, he talked and he ate with them for days. And then he was gone. He was taken up into the heavens, but he did this in clear view of his disciples. You see, if all that had not happened, you would not even know this man's name. Jesus would just be another leader who made bold claims and died young. A 33-year-old rabbi with high aspirations. And we would have never heard of him. But the fact is that long before he was crucified, Jesus actually predicted that all this would happen. Not only did he predict his own resurrection, he also promised to one day return. And that when he does return, everyone who had ever believed in him, anyone who had ever banked their lives on his words and his claims, would experience a resurrection like his. 
In fact, Jesus promised that when he returned, not only would the people who believed in him experience resurrection, but this world itself would be given new life. Everything that's under our feet and, and over our heads that we can see around us would all be transformed when he returns. The heavens and the earth. And, and this new heaven and, and, and new earth would be lived in by a resurrected humanity. A resurrected humanity that would live in this new heavens and new earth and enjoy the presence of their God. Without sin, a world without death, every evil cast out. The Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he was given a peek at what's to come for all those who believe in Christ. He wrote these words, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said this, Behold, I am making all things new. And get this, the one who was seated on that throne was Jesus. The one who resurrected bodily, crucified, but raised from the dead on the third day. He was ascended. He, uh, he sat on his throne and he sits on his throne now to reign as king forever. You see, while we are quarantined, whether we are fearful or maybe just frustrated, or maybe we're grieving, whatever the case may be, right now is the perfect time to think about the resurrection. It's the perfect time to think about this because Jesus Christ, listen, because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you can know that everyone who believes in him will also be raised unto eternal life with him, our Redeemer King. So we can take heart. Take heart, new hope. Don't lose hope because Resurrection Day is coming for us. We have a passage in front of us today that was just read by Dan. It wasn't selected for Easter Sunday. It just happens to be the very next section in the Gospel of John as we go through the Gospel of John. But I think it's a good fit for Easter because here's what this passage we're going to look at shows us. It shows us that you need to lose your life in order to truly live. You need to lose your life in order to truly live. If you look again at John chapter 12, that passage that was just read, you look at verse 24 and 25. This is how Jesus puts it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There are three parts to this account in John chapter 12. There's an announcement, there's an explanation, and then there's the call. We're going to look at the announcement first. Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover, and this is what happens. In John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to Jerusalem to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now these Greeks, it doesn't mean that they were necessarily from Greece. It just means that they were non-Jews. They were Greek-speaking Gentiles. But these Gentiles came to Jerusalem during Passover with millions of other worshipers, and they did it either because they believed in the God of the Jews or because they were interested, they were curious about him. In any case, they want to see Jesus. Maybe they had heard about you. They must have heard about him. Maybe they had heard about what he had just done. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe they had heard about his other teach his teachings or his other signs, his other miracles. In any case, these Greeks, they come to Philip, one of the disciples, and they say, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip doesn't know if he should take them to Jesus or not, it seems. He says, I don't know. Let's, I'll go tell Andrew. And so he tells Andrew. And Andrew seems to not know either. He says, I don't know. Let's tell Jesus. And so they do. And here's Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And and And... I wonder if Philip and Andrew wondered, what do we tell the Greeks? Is that a yes or a no, Jesus? Are you going to see them or not? But, but soon they would have realized, and, and all the other disciples there would have realized, that Jesus is making an announcement here. You see, religious leaders were already plotting against him. People were praising him as king. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in the earlier part of this chapter. And now even foreigners, Gentiles, are coming to Jesus. And so as all these things fall into place, Jesus says, now is the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, we hear reference to this, this hour. Either it says, his hour, or my hour. In John chapter 2, Mary wants, the mother of Jesus wants Jesus to, to display his power and to reveal his identity to everyone. And he says, no, 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 my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, people try to arrest Jesus, and they're not able to. And John tells us they weren't able to arrest him because his hour had not yet come. The hour the time was not right. But now, Jesus says it's time. It's time for him to finish the work that he had come to do. What this means is that it was time for him to be crucified. 
and then rise in the ultimate display of power over death. It was time for him to die and rise from the dead. It was time for him to lay down his life and then pick it up again, as he himself told his disciples earlier. And after rising from the dead, he would ascend and sit on his throne to reign, highly exalted, ruling with all authority. You see, all of that is packed into those words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But it seems that Jesus is really focusing here. His mind is really focused on this, that his path to glory before he's highly exalted, before he sits on the throne to reign, before he's glorified fully in that way, his path to glory would have to lead through death. And that seems to be his focus here because in the next section, he talks about the fact that he's deeply troubled. What is he troubled about? About the death that's ahead of him, about the cross that he will hang on. His disciples probably didn't get that. They didn't understand it. And so Jesus explains as only he can explain. And so that's the second part of this, this scene. There's, there's an explanation. And the explanation comes in verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The metaphor is a pretty simple one. A seed's purpose is to be buried, planted. That's what seeds are for. And for any seed to do what it's meant to do, it has to, what does, it has to go into the ground. If it sits alone in a jar, it's useless. It's purposeless. Because that seed exists to produce fruit. And in order for it to produce fruit, it has to die. It has to be buried. And what Jesus is explaining here primarily has to do with himself, his own death. He's telling us and he's telling those disciples that when he gets hung on that cross, his death will not be purposeless. His death, in fact, will be fruitful. His death will be like a seed planted and bearing a harvest. A 19th century Anglican author and preacher who I, I really love, J.C. Ryle, he put it this way, Christ's death was to be a source of spiritual life to the world. From his cross and his passion was to spring up a mighty harvest of benefit to all mankind. See, Christ's death would produce a harvest of eternal life for everyone who believes in him. He would die so that all who come and believe in him could live eternally. And Jesus is saying it's time for that to happen. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. 
He died in the place of sinners, thereby paying the debt that we incurred through our sin, thereby absorbing the penalty for our sin, thereby taking upon himself the curse that comes because of our sin. And he did all that so that we could have eternal life. Not just us, New Hope. Everyone and anyone who believes in him. There is glory in that. Because there is glory in in this. When when a king rescues his people by by giving up himself. And then he, he claims back his own life. And then he claims his throne. There's glory in that, and that's how Jesus would be glorified. But it all started with death. The path to glory had to go through death on that cross. His disciples probably still didn't understand this, but they would eventually. Jesus goes on, and what he says in the very next verse, he starts to get a little bit more personal with his listeners and with us, we get the sense in verse 25 that when he's talking, he's not just talking about himself anymore here. What he's talking about seems to have a lot to do with us. Because he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's he's advising us to hate our lives in order to keep and receive eternal life. Now those words are kind of confusing. Why, well, how am I gonna, how, how and why should I hate my life? Isn't your life a gift from God? Isn't life to be cherished and protected? Doesn't God himself teach us to preserve life, to cherish it? We certainly aren't to hate what God gives to us as a gift. But what's happening here is Jesus is is speaking as a Hebrew with a very Hebrew way of making a strong point. It's a strong contrast that he's trying to draw, and he does draw. He's telling us there are two ways for us to live, two ways for us to view our lives in this world. One way is to love your life in this world. And and what he says is that to love your life here, it means to to lay complete claim over your life and to say, this is mine. No one can tell me how to live. This is my life. That's part of what it means to love your life in this world. But to love your life, as Jesus puts it here, also means to be consumed with, with the here and now consumed with what's valuable here and now. To love your life is to live as if what you achieve and what you accumulate right here for yourself is what really matters. To love your life is to live as if it's all about self-gratification or self-preservation. It's all about advancement. But loving your life can also look a little less selfish too. Sometimes loving your life in this world 
It can look like this, taking the good things that God has given you and making them ultimate, living for them. One could live for a number of good things. I can live for my children. I can live for my family. Or I can live for ministry. Or you can live for your job. See, any of these good gifts that God's given you, you can make them ultimate and live for them. In Spanish, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, but I, my wife is. And I know that in Spanish, there are many different ways to speak affectionately to others, to use affectionate terms to refer to others whom you love. So for instance, someone might refer to their spouse as mi vida, mi vida, what does that mean, my life? Or mi corazón, my heart, or mi alma, my, my soul. And, and we use these words just to express love. I could say to my child, mi vida. But I wonder if sometimes we actually live as if other people really are our lives. Like our lives really are bound up in them. Maybe it's not people, maybe it's something else. But that thing becomes mi vida, my life, mi corazón, mi alma. It becomes my soul, my heart. It's all wrapped up in that. Jesus says, when you love your life in this world in that way, you will lose it. He says, better to hate your life. What does that mean? To hate your life means to say, all of this right here, right now, all that I have, it's not what matters most to me. Hating your life means not living for all that this life can offer you. Hating your life means saying, what I, what I really want, what I was really made for, is eternal life. It's not what's here right now. So I'm willing to lose all that I have now in order to gain eternal life. You see, to hate your life is to say, I don't exist to gratify myself. I don't exist to satisfy me. I exist for the one who lost his life for me who laid his life down and picked it back up for me. My purpose in this life is not to satisfy myself. Instead, God's put me in this world to, to function like a seed. That is to produce fruit. The fruit of worship for God. The fruit of obedience to God. The fruit of leading others to him. And to do that, Jesus says, I have to lose my life. You see, we have to lose our lives in order to receive eternal life. Jim Elliott was a 29-year-old missionary who lost his life 60 years ago in Ecuador. He was killed by the uh, Warani people. Uh, in the past, they were known as the Auka people, whom he was seeking to minister to. He wanted to serve those people. He wanted to uh, uh, share the gospel with them. Uh, he wanted to declare hope in Christ to them. He wanted to love them. They didn't realize all that. They killed him. He was martyred at the age of 29. And Jim Elliott said these words. It's probably his most famous quote. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. You see, he was willing to lose his life in order to gain eternal life. And he's saying to lose your life in order to gain eternal life, that's not a foolish move. Move, it's actually wise. It's a good deal. Jesus is contrasting that with the life that's spent seeking self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. And he says that if you live that way, you lose eternal life. So in this account, we've got an announcement, we've got an explanation, and then we've got a call, a call to us. Jesus is placing the call upon us here. He's, he's, He's telling us to do something. Look at verse 26. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see the call that God is putting, that Jesus is putting upon our lives here. Jesus said, Jesus himself lost his life to produce this harvest of fruit in order to, to produce eternal life for us. And he's calling us to follow him. He's calling us to follow him and lose our lives. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If we've confessed Jesus as king, then we must follow him and lose our lives. What does that look like for us to lose our lives? I'm no expert. I hate losing my life. Perhaps you're like me. You're you're trying to learn to lose your life in small ways to give up what's valuable to you. I think there are at least two ways that we can lose our lives, that Jesus is calling us to lose our lives. It's not just like Jim Elliott, although it may be. To lose our lives may mean to give our lives up physically to be martyred. But it doesn't always look like that. So I wanna share with you quickly just two ways that I believe Jesus is calling us to lose our lives. One is to lose our lives to him, and the other one is to lose our lives for others. He's calling us to lose our life to him, to Jesus. In other words, this is what I mean. When we believe in Jesus, He is calling us to to completely give up claims to our own life. When we believe in him, we are saying, you rule, you are in charge. Your agenda is what drives me now. I relinquish all claims to my life. Because 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We must give up our lives to Jesus, give up control, give up authority so that he has authority over us and not ourselves. Throughout the book of John, 
Jesus keeps eter um, offering eternal life. Over and over again, he keeps saying, whoever believes in me, I'll give you eternal life. He says it more than a dozen times. And here he, re he reveals something, that in order to receive that eternal life, what we really need to do is release and relinquish hold on our own life. And that means more than just admitting that I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. See, believing in him, he's showing us it's more than just saying that Jesus is, in fact, God in the, in the flesh, and he died and he rose from the dead, and confessing that. Believing in Jesus is more than just seeing him for who he is. Here he's telling us it means following him. It means giving up ourselves to him. And following Jesus always means dying to ourselves. It always means dying to ourselves. It means dying to our self-centered goals, our attempts at making ourselves look good. It means no longer living for ourselves. Many of you have probably heard the famous quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus is telling us here, that's what it means to believe in me. It means to follow. And in order to do that, you must give up your life. Relinquish all claims to him. And losing our lives also means losing our lives for others. Isn't that what Jesus did? He gave up his life to serve us. And so he calls us to do the same thing for others. And I think that in the in recent uh, weeks during this crisis, I think we've had an opportunity to see a lot of that happening. Even within our church, within our community, we see people serving others at great cost to themselves. We see our healthcare professionals risking their lives to care for those who are ill. We see members of our church helping and giving to one another. All of that in small ways is losing our life for others. How can we continue to do that? How can we keep doing that? One of the things I've been trying to think about, and maybe you have too, is in this current crisis, how can we serve others? outside of our community, non-Christians, how can we serve them? People who don't know Jesus, how can we help them see Jesus? I think it's a conversation that we have to have. I think that we, we need to, as a church, give, give more and more thought to how to do that. It's so hard given that we're all isolated, but perhaps the Lord is, 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 is offering us opportunities to do that even now. And maybe now we have a time to think and pray about this so that when this crisis is over, we can more effectively begin to serve others and give up our lives for others. And here's another area where we can give up our lives for others. It's in our own homes. In our own homes. Sometimes those are, that's the hardest place for us to give up our lives for others. 
to die to ourselves. We're at home. Many of us are cooped up. Conflict pops up every once in a while. And, and, and the more we, we stay together and the more we, we, we stay confined and isolated, we start to live more and more selfishly. It's possible for this to happen because frustration, pent up energy, we start, we start preferring ourselves over others. Jesus has put us in these homes, in our homes. He's called us to actually die to ourselves to serve others. To, what would it look like if in our homes we thought, I've been put here for the purpose of setting aside my own preferences, my own desires, my own comforts in order to serve these other people, my family members, my siblings, my parents, my children my roommate, my spouse. Sometimes when my kids get into arguments about something, someone wants something and the other one wants it and they're fighting, sometimes I'll say, would it really kill you to just let him have it? Would it really kill you to, to just give that thing up? And I was thinking about it as I'm studying this passage, in a sense, it really does kill us. Every time we set aside our preference, every time we give up something that we want and we give preference to someone else, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're dying to ourselves. We're, we're killing that selfishness a little bit. And so let's seek ways to do that in our own us In the Gospel of John, I believe he has us there for a reason. He wants us to see Jesus. Over and over again. During this crisis, many of us were seeing a lot of things. We're, we're seeing so much bad news. We're seeing stats that, that scare us. Some of you in the workplace, you're seeing so much illness and death and grief. And we can't escape those things. But God has us in the Gospel of John so that we will also be looking at Jesus. And the point of seeing Jesus is to believe in him and to follow him. Are you believing in him? Are you following him? New Hope, let's continue. Let's continue to seek to die to self and live for Christ. We're not going to get it quite right. We're going to keep failing. And Christ knows this. And that's why we have to remember that the cross, it sets a pattern for us that we're to follow. We're supposed to die to self in order to experience true life. But before the cross is a pattern for us, it's the, it's the, it needs to be the focus of our faith. First and foremost, the cross shows us that Jesus Christ died for all of our failings. For all of the times that we've lived for self, for all of the times that we put ourselves before others, for all of the times that we will not, we refuse to relinquish the claim on our life to Christ and refuse to obey him. If you have believed in Christ, then all of those sins are covered, paid for. 
We know this because he rose from the grave and one day he'll return. Until then, let's keep following him. Will you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, you put a call upon us that is, it, it seems unachievable. It's, it's too much for us, Lord. How can we continue to die to ourselves? How can we continue to give up our lives to you and to give up our lives for others? We need your spirit to work in us, to work humility and compassion and love in us, to work faith and trust in us. Please do this, Lord. We ask that, that we would believe so firmly in your death and resurrection that we would be willing to die to ourselves knowing that we one day will experience the resurrection as well. We pray all this in your name. Amen.